guys are a good-looking bunch. Good-looking bunch. Can we um, kind of maintain this atmosphere just for a moment to just uh, see what God wants to speak to our hearts? I'm so grateful for the mentors in my life. Yesterday, I got to see my pastor who gave 32 years of ministry and poured his life out. Such a wonderful wonderful experience yeah yeah some of my Kentucky people saw it it was so good it was so good and uh, I thought man um, you know and now he's about to pour back into people's lives he said when you're young you learn it when you're in your middle age middle years you earn it and then when you get older you return it and that good that's so good and um, it was just so good to uh, to hear that and I'm grateful that I had people speaking into my life that said things to me that I can recall those words. Hold on to words, especially whenever, you know, some words you, you just throw out, right? But when you pay attention to who it is that's speaking words and you look at their life and their life reflects Christ, hold on to those things. And uh, I say that to say one thing that um, my pastor told me. He said, Chris, when you step into this calling in your life, he said, there's going to be some things that's going to change. And he began to explain what some of those things were. He said, you're going to be, begin to have an ear for the Lord differently. And now, theologically, I thought that I understand that, right? Because, look, I, I went to Bible college. I understand the Scripture. I've studied Scripture for a long time. I said, yeah, I hear what you're saying. And he just kind of smiled at me. He says, yeah, you know, because there's one thing to know it, and there's another thing to live it. And so I remember, you know, I was a, a youth pastor for 15 years. Man, one of the greatest honors of my life. And then when God called me to transition to be a lead pastor and to uh, plant Destiny Church, Almost just like that, some things changed. Um, I had a different set of eyes. I had a different set of ears. And I began to hear things and to see things differently. And I thought that I understood that. And, I, and um, you can't really understand it until you walk into it. But it's talking about stepping into what it is that God has called you to. And God has called each and every one of us to something. And so I say that to say, I heard the Lord say, and so I'm going to give you this word. Um, this is certainly an audible. We call these audibles. This is where this is not planned. <laughs> and God just speaks something to your heart. But I heard the Lord say this, set yourself. Set yourself. And here's what the Lord showed me. And this was just in worship, not even five to ten minutes ago. I, I, I saw a, a boat, yet there were three different characters, if you will, three different sets of people. And the first set had their cell up. They had set their cell. They had set their cell appropriately. They had positioned it properly. And the wind was strong. And they were flying. And the people that were catching the wind, you saw the smile and the joy exude from them. Then there was a second set of people. And this second set of people actually represented two different types of people. One of them was those that knew to set their sail. They had been taught to set their sail. They could feel that the wind was coming. They saw all of the, the, the waves that's, that's kind of rumbling around them, and yet they did nothing about it. Then there was another set on, on that same middle set that did not have their set sail, and those were ones who didn't know what to do. They're in the boat, and they're looking around, and the Lord says, that one I can work with if they will be teachable and if they will learn. 
But then there was that third set that I was talking about. And that was those, and I hear the Lord even say it now, those that, who, had, who has been rebellious. They set their sails only. They didn't position it properly. They set the sails to go their own course rather than God's course. And here's what I saw. I saw the wind because it was a mighty wind come, and it caught the sail, and it turned the boat over. Now, I don't know all that that means other than this, is that God has called each and every one of us to something. Whether it's a vocation, ministerial like me for a pastor, or maybe for your job, maybe where God's called you as a wife or as a husband, where God has called you as a parent, where God has called you as an employee, whatever it is, whatever it is that God has called you to, like position yourself before the Lord. Because watch this. For the person that knew to set their cell and did nothing, they're sitting there and they had this look on their face like, because here's the wind and it's just chopping all around them and they're just sitting there. The first person that set their cell was cutting right through it all. Wasn't even paying attention because they had their eyes fixed on where they were going. And then the other person, well, I think you can kind of go there in the theater of your mind of what that looked like. The ones that set their own course says, I don't want to go that course. Here's the course I'm going to go. And it toppled over. I I think that the scripture even talks about that a little bit. Jesus uses that parable when it talks about the man who built his house on the sand versus the one who built it on the rock. And great was the fall. And I feel like that's the word that I feel there. So I don't know who that's to, but I believe this with all of my heart, whether it's those that are in this room, whether it's those of you that are watching online, that it represents three different types of people. But here's what I believe with all of my heart. We serve a God of hope, a God who wants to restore, a God who wants to redeem. And so even if you're the one who's setting your own course, the Lord says, change course. Do you know that's what repentance means? It doesn't just mean, hey, I'm just going to pray a prayer. I got my fire insurance going to heaven. No, repentance means I'm going to change course. I'm going to make a 180. My course was this direction. This is for someone in this room, the Lord says. And you need to change course. Because the fall is great. Church, as a minister of the gospel, I'm prophetically declaring you the word of the Lord right now. Change course. Set your sails. For those of you who are new to this, you're like, man, whoa, what in the world do I step into today? That's okay. You're the one that's there, and the Lord says, I can use you because I'm going to teach you. If you'll have an ear, he who has an ear, let him hear what my spirit is saying. All you got to do is be willing to hear. You may be here, and this may be your first time to church in a really long time. Guess what? It's no coincidence that God brought you here. God doesn't operate through coincidence. He operates by providence, and here you are today. So all you have to do is to allow your heart to be found as fertile soil before the Lord and let the Word of God do His work and the Spirit of God to do His work in your life. And for those of you that have been here for some time, that do know what to do, it's time to raise that sail. Don't be like the children of Israel. In 40 years, what should have taken 10 days. Some of you guys, you've been lingering. And you've been thinking that the Lord's been waiting on you, but the Lord, uh, uh, that you're waiting on God, but rather God's waiting on you. Set yourself. And for those of you 
that you have the smile on your face that I see right now as I look around that you've already set yourself. Keep running. You're running well. Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you for your spirit, for your word. We thank you, God, for the work that you're doing in each one of our lives. So grateful, God. So grateful, Father. It's your grace, God. It's your unmerited favor, Father. That, Lord, we receive any good thing because, God, none is good. No, not one. Only God alone. And we recognize that in our life, every good and perfect gift comes from heaven above. And so, Father, we thank you for your many blessings on our life. God, may we be faithful. May we be obedient, Lord God. May we be available. May we be teachable people, Lord God. Sons and daughters bringing glory to your name. Jesus, it's your name and your renown that's the heart, our heart's desire. Have your way in this place. We pray in the mighty, matchless name of Jesus. And everyone says, amen, amen. And can we thank God for his grace? And can we let this worship team know how good they are? How, how grateful we are for, thank you guys. You guys are so good, man. You're awesome. Thank you for following along there for a moment. And uh, I'm going to get a drink of water, all right? You know, there's no way to, like, take a drink of water and it not seem awkward. But you know what's even more awkward is, like, watching someone drink from a straw. That dawned on me. I don't know why this is coming to my mind. The other day, I was, like, having a serious conversation with someone. And I'm like, oh, you're having a serious And I just, drink. Yeah, that was so. It is what it is, man. Got to drink some water. <laughs> Are you guys ready to hear the ninth installment of our Storyteller series Come on, I have enjoyed this series so much, and I got to tell you that perhaps this series I've enjoyed more than any other series ever before, and that's because five months ago, I wasn't sure if I'd ever get the chance to stand up here and get to teach you God's Word ever again. And I know there's some of you that are new here today. And by the way, can we just welcome all of our guests, man? I see new faces. So good to have you guys both online here and in person, but... If you are new, about a year ago, I had been experiencing some neurological issues that had prevented me from being able to do a lot of things. I had got to the place to where um, I could not read. I got to the place to where I, I could not write. We're talking six months ago, folks, but it all started about a year ago. I got to the place to where I couldn't even uh, text. I, I got to the place to where I couldn't find my words, or what's medically called aphasia, for those of you that know what that is. I couldn't recall probably most things, and I had gotten to the point to where I couldn't drive a car. And of course, many of you know that on December the 5th, Jody had gotten up and shared with you guys that I was going to be stepping down from the pulpit for a season until we determined what was going on. But inside, I didn't know what was going on or if I would ever be up here again. But at the beginning of January this year, gosh, just five months ago, I can't believe it, um, we were able to pinpoint the cause. I had a tumor the size of a racquetball that needed to be removed from my brain or else I was not going to live to see the next year. And um, I was immediately scheduled for surgery when they found this out, and the surgery was a huge success. And 
I just want to just mention that right now to just give thanks to God. To give glory to God for allowing me to be able to raise my girls, to love my wife, and to pastor this church. And so, so grateful. I'm a grateful man. I'm a grateful man. I'm so thankful. And today is the ninth week in a row that I've been able to stand up here and preach and teach God's word. And I will promise you that I will try my best by the power of his Holy Spirit and trusting in him and leaning on him to teach and preach God's word with every ounce of my being, and I will preach it like it's my last. Because, friends, can I just tell you something? We never know when our last is going to be for anything. Are you with me? And so it's for that reason that I want to say love your family like it's the last. Give your very best effort in your job like each day's your last. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and do it like it's your last. Amen? Amen. So how about this? How about right now, let's just ask the Lord to just position our heart, because I've got a word just burning in my spirit to share with you guys. So just one more time, I know we prayed, but Father, prepare our hearts now. Thank you for your word that does its bidding. God, your word, Lord, you've sent it to come down, Lord, to heal us, Lord. Heal our diseases, Lord, our infirmities, God, our our sin-sick state. God, you said your word, it wouldn't return to you void, but it would accomplish everything that you sent it forth to do. So, God, we thank you for your word, and we pray right now that our hearts would just be found, Lord God, as that fertile soil. We speak against any distractions from the enemy. We just speak against the prince and the power of this uh, current world, and we just declare the works of the devil void, kneel, and dead in Jesus' name. But we pray your kingdom come, your will be done here at Destiny Church, Lord. And Father, in all the churches here in Jacksonville, Father, thank you for what you're doing in our city. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Today I want us to look at the life of Job. Yes, that's right, that's right. And I want us to look at what his life story can teach us. And this has been probably the message that I've been looking forward to teaching this entire series. Because Job's story, it hits in almost every area of life. And so if you have your Bible, I want to encourage you to turn right now to the book of Job, or if you use your iPhones, whatever you have, go ahead and um, turn there. If you need help finding it, Job is found just before the book of Psalms. And as you're turning there, maybe I'll just give you a little bit of insight into the place of Job in the Old Testament. Job is the first of five books commonly referred to as the books of poetry. And these include Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon. And they're called such because they're written in a poetic style which differs from the narrative style of most other books. Some even refer to these five books as the wisdom literature. But just to give you a little bit of a concise summary about these five books, the book of Job teaches us how to suffer. The book of Psalms teaches us how to pray. 
The book of Proverbs teaches us how to act. The book of Ecclesiastes teaches us how to enjoy. And the book of the Song of Solomon teaches us how to love. Now, the book of Job, it follows the life of one main character, the person to whom this book is named after, Job. And the author of this book is fully not known. As a matter of fact, some believe that it was Moses, yet others believe that maybe it was written before Moses. But the uncertainty of the author and the date, it does not nullify its inspiration. As a matter of fact, whenever you look out the Bible, you'll see other people reference it. As a matter of fact, Apostle Paul, he references it uh, in the New Testament on several occasions in his writings. And if you want a little bit of a, a better understanding of the historical events that took place in Job, they appear somewhere between Noah and Moses. And we draw that conclusions because there are no allusions to the law of Moses, but it does mention a flood in the book of Job. Also, as we read in Job's life, Job offered sacrifices to his family, similar to what we see in the life of Abraham. And his longevity is kind of typical of the patriarchs. And so we can stand to reason that Job was somewhat of a contemporary with Abraham. But what we do know about the book of Job is that its purpose is to address the age-old question, why does God allow the righteous to suffer? Whereas we may commonly ask, why do bad things happen to good people? And we're going to get around to addressing that question. Now, the book of Job has 42 chapters. So I'm going to need 42 hours to teach you this. Just kidding. Here's what I am going to do. I'm going to just kind of go throughout and narrate um, and give you the cliff notes. But what we're going to do is we're going to camp and kind of highlight several key points throughout the story. And if you don't have your note-taking stuff out just yet, trust me, you're going to want to grab your note-taking stuff out so that you can take notes because today's message and next week's message, because there's no way I'm going to be able to do the book of Job in one message. It's going to be hard in two. But um, you're going to need it. You're going to need it throughout the various seasons of life. Because there's never been a single person who has ever lived that has not faced some type of suffering. And how you face those moments affects the outcome of your life. Let's dive into the book of Job. Are you ready? All right, as we look at the first chapter of Job, we meet Job. And Job is a man who is surrounded with all kinds of blessings. Job has seven sons. He has three daughters. He has 7,000 sheep. That's a lot of sheep. He has 3,000 camel. He has 500 yoke of oxen. He has 500 donkeys and a lot of servants. And the Bible says that Job was the greatest of all the men of the east. And this was in a day and in a time when one's wealth was an indicator of their spirituality. For example, if you see a man who was abounding with blessings, then it was believed that that man was a righteous man. And as we'll read, we'll see that Job was indeed 
a righteous man. As a matter of fact, God even confirmed that he's, he, he was a righteous man as we read about a, a conversation here a little bit later on. But also, we can even look at what Job mentioned about himself, which is pretty amazing, by the way, when, when you think about what he says. Because he said things like, he never looked with lust. What? <laughs> I mean, how many of us guys can say, never? Yeah, none, right? He also said that no stranger ever escaped his boundless hospitality. He said that he was a father to the fatherless. And in so many ways, and this is so very true of Joseph, we see that, that uh, Job is like Joseph in that he's like a type of Christ, right? He says he was a father to the fatherless and, and a friend and a helper of the widow. And then he said this. He said that he did what is right in the eyes of the Lord. And watch this. This was even before the giving of the Mosaic law, which is interesting because as you read about some of the things that he did, things like knowing to give his Sabbath or giving his uh, property uh, a rest or a Sabbath, that was before the Sabbath was even a law, right? Which I believe kind of teaches us something, that when you have relationship with God, even though you might not cognizantly know the right thing to do. The Holy Spirit will lead you and will direct you. And I mention this because there are many believers that they get caught up in either doing or not doing something because they're not sure if it's God or not. But you don't have to have a degree in theology or to have the book of Hebrews memorized in order to follow through on what the Holy Spirit tells you to do. Y'all with me this morning? I'm not saying we don't disregard, that we disregard Scripture, all right? No way would I ever say that. You know that. I'm just saying that you don't have to wait until you've read through the Bible a dozen times before you walk in faith. Yes, we study the Scripture and we do what we tell it that we should, or tells us to do, but there are those moments that you just may not be able to simply recall a verse that fits that moment, but it's in those moments that God's Holy Spirit will lead us and will guide us and show us things that we may not have learned through our study. It's called on-the-job training. Or more specifically, it's called being led by the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, 14 says, For those who are led by the Spirit of God, they are the children of God. 1 John 2.27 says, but the anointing that you receive from him comes once you've received your masters in divinity. No, that's not what it says, all right? The anointing that you have received from him, it abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. And so we see things in Job's life that God must have shown him because these were things that were not even written in Scripture yet. And this just goes to show that God was indeed a man who walked with God. Now I want us to just kind of uh, shift scenes for a moment because a key piece to understanding all that Job is about to go through is directly in connection to a conversation that takes place in heaven in the first chapter of Job. And I'm going to read you the six verses of that conversation. It's Job chapter 1, verses 6 through 12. 
The Bible says one day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also along with them. As a matter of fact, there are other translations. Uh, a translation that I feel like is more appropriate says, now there was a day, right, when the sons of God came to present themselves to the Lord. And the implication here is that that was uh, something that was done in the past, but it's not done in the present, nor was it done in the present, even whenever the time of this was being written. So that goes to show you that they were no longer able or allowed to do that. Just kind of key point to write down there. But the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? And Satan answered the Lord, from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does God fear, or does Job fear God for nothing, Satan replied? Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and his herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well then. Everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now this sets the context for the rest of the story of Job. Job was a righteous man who had been blessed by God. But Satan desired to see all of Job's blessings taken from him. And he desired to see Job curse God to his face. How many of you know that Satan still is trying to do that thing in our life? That's why the Bible calls him a thief who comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. And so it's important that we recognize that it's God who brings about the good things in our life. I, Jacob highlighted this just a minute ago. It's God that brings the good things into our lives, who bestows blessings upon us. But it's Satan who wants to bring about destruction. Now maybe you're wondering, but wait a minute. If God wants to bless us, but Satan wants to uh, destroy us, then why does God allow it to happen? And the short answer is this, he doesn't. He doesn't. There may be a weapon that's formed against you, but watch this, it is not going to prosper. It's not going to prosper. 1 John 3, 8 says, this is, goes back to that picture he gave me, the guy in the middle boat. Now, if you sit there and you don't set your sail, it's going, or you're the third guy, you're going to topple, and you're just going to sit there, and, and it will get you. But 1 John 3, 8 says this, that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Come on, somebody. Now, you may say, well, but then why does God allow Satan to bring about suffering? And that right there, that's the question we all want to know, right? And I'll tell you right up front that there is no perfect, satisfactory answer to that question. None of us know why. Matter of fact, when we look at the end of Job's life, he really never knew why. But watch this. We do know the what. We know what God does in our lives anytime the enemy tries to attack us. And the what is the purpose and the intent of the book of Job. It reveals what God did in Job's life through the things that he suffered. But before we get ahead of ourselves, let's just talk about what it was that he went through and the things that he did suffer. 
By the time we get around to the end of the first chapter of Job, we see Job in a completely different state than we do in the beginning. One in which he's crippled and he's bankrupt. There'd been a crash on Wall Street. And now Job doesn't quite have the portfolio that he once had. He'd been wiped out. And the Bible says that one by one, messengers knocked on his door. And by the way, this is all in the same day. One by one, messengers knocked on his door, all with bad news. Come on, every y'all have a day like that? <laughs> no doubt, right? It's the days where when it rains, it pours. Well, the first messenger, he came to Job, and he told him that all of his oxen and his donkeys were taken by the Sabines. And they killed all of his servants that were tending to them. Now, this right here would have been a hard hit for Job, but, you know, he could have wrote, wrote it off. He still had plenty, and he could always get more ox and donkeys. But then a second messenger came, and he said that a terrible thunderstorm came, and fire from heaven fell, and it burned up all 7,000 of his sheep along with all of those servants. Again, now this is a big hit to Job, but it still wasn't something that he couldn't eventually get back. But then comes the third knock at the door. Three strikes and you're out, kind of, right? Job's told that the Chaldeans took all 3,000 of his camels. Now watch this. That would be the equivalent of 3,000 tractor and trailer rigs on the road today. Because you got to understand this about camels. Like camels during that time, this is what would carry and transport Job's goods, where he would take it and travel through the first fertile crescent and going on down into the exotic uh, parts of the distant east where he would sell his goods. But now, that's all gone. And at this hit, this third hit, Job's bankrupt, absolutely bankrupt. Now try and imagine this, if you will. This isn't just the Dow Jones shedding a thousand points right here. This is it going to nothing, right? Everything that Job owned was destroyed. And if this wasn't bad enough, the Bible says that even as that third messenger was sharing with him the news and speaking, a fourth messenger was standing right there in line. And he came and he said, your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell on the young people and they died. The messenger said, I alone have escaped to tell you. So Job's sheep and those that were tending the sheep were all killed. By what appears to be, I have no idea, like in an insane lightning storm that burned them all up. His camel and his donkeys, they were all stolen as well as all of the servants were killed that were tending to them. And then if things couldn't possibly get any worse, a tornado hits the house where all of his children are and it killed them. And we think that we've had bad days. <laughs> got to tell you, I thought about Job many times over the last six months and all that we've went through. At the end of chapter 1, the Bible says that Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, and he fell to the ground in worship. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. 
The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Then the Bible says in verse 22, through all of this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. This chapter teaches us something. It teaches us that you never really understand your heart when things are going well. It's only whenever things go so badly that you can truly see it. And that's because it's only when suffering comes that you recognize who the true God is and who the false gods are in your life. Only the true God can go with you through the furnace and come out on the other side. The other gods will abandon you in the furnace. Now I want us to jump to chapter 2. And if you paused to chapter 1, if you were reading your Bible, thought, oh, I'll get back to chapter 2 later, you might be tempted to think, well, you know, I mean, at least Job still has his health, right? And he has his wife. And I can testify as one who's about to celebrate 25 years of marriage next week. Come on, Jesus. Yeah. Had a surprise party thrown to us. Thank you, guys, Karen and Ann and my kids. That was so special. And, um, but when you, when you have your wife at your side, you can go through a lot. I'm telling you. Trust me on this. All right, I can testify to this. When you've got someone who's there who's encouraging you, who's praying with you, believing uh, with you, and helping you in any way that you need. But chapter 2 it doesn't have a pretty little bow tied up around it. And I've got to just tell you that I love that the Bible is real. Right? And what, what I mean by that is it's full of real-life stories that often speak to the unwanted and undesired troubles in life. But of course it would reveal that, right? Why? Because that's real life. And God knows that we live in a real world which has a real adversary who really wants to take you out. But God's word, it speaks to all of life's moments. And so now we're here and we're in chapter 2 of the book of Job where we see another conversation that was much like the first. And so I'm going to read this conversation to you as well. It's Job 2, 1 through 7. And it says, again, there was a day. When the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? God knew where he was at, by the way. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? For there's no one like him on the earth, a blameless and an upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. And he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. Satan answered the Lord, and he said, skin for skin. Yes, all that a man has, he will give for his life. However, put forth your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh. He will curse you to your face. So the Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your power. Only spare his life. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord, and he smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. So now Job's 
health has been hit. But at least he's got his wife to stand there at his side, right? By the way, what we're about to read is no indictment on women. We could easily be reading other stories in the Bible where the shoe is on the other foot and it's man that's screwing up. As a matter of fact, it usually is just putting that out there and all the ladies say, that's a good place to say amen, ladies. But here we've got Job and he's he's scraping with a pot shirt. He's trying to scrape off the boils and his wife comes to him and says, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Did you hear that word right there? That, that word stood out to me when it says, do you still? In other words, it's like, Job, I understand you want to walk in integrity. I understand you want to be a man of character. I get that. But, you know, whenever the first messenger came, I was like, okay, still maintaining integrity. Second one, hmm, okay, still maintaining integrity. And the third, everything we got swapped away. Well, but at least we do have our kids, so okay, I get it. And then our kids, really, Job? Really? You're still going to worship God? You're still going to trust God? You're still going to hold on to your integrity, Job? And at that, she says, curse God and die. And the interesting thing here that I find is that this was the same proposition that the Satan made uh, to the Lord in regards to Job, that if he would touch Job's health, that then he would curse God. And now his wife is telling him to do that very thing. Job's wife is much like what we see in contemporary people who believe that life is all about finding happiness. And so they decide what conditions will make them happy in order to bring about those conditions. But to live for happiness means that you are trying to get something out of life. Yet when suffering comes, it takes the conditions for happiness away, and then suffering destroys your reason to keep living. But to live for meaning instead of living for happiness means that you don't try to get something out of life, but watch this, rather life expects something from us. In other words, you only have meaning when there's something in life that's more important than your own personal freedom and happiness. Something for which you would be glad to sacrifice your happiness. Now, Job didn't know this, but his whole life was set at center stage. Where all of heaven above and all hell below were watching to see what the outcome was. Job's story was being written so that it could teach us how to live. And isn't that what the Apostle Paul says in the book of Romans chapter 15 and verse 4? For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us. So that through the endurance taught in the scripture and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. Church, can I just say, this is why we need to be continually reading God's word. I'm going to tell you what I have found to be consistent 99% of the time. I've been in full-time ministry now for 23 years. Every time someone 
gets themselves in a stuck place. And what I mean a stuck place, a decision that they've made. Right? Not just that something difficult come their way like Job, but like they did something that they shouldn't have done. I try to lovingly, now you're going to pick up on this if I ever have to counsel you guys. <laughs> but I always lovingly say, can I ask you the last time that you spent time in the word and with the Lord? And I know what the answer is going to be even before you tell me. 99% of the time. 99% of the time. It's so important that we spend time in God's word. And here's why. Because God's word, it produces hope in our hearts. And we need hope. Why? Because the way that you live now is completely controlled by what you believe about your future. And if you don't have hope, then you're going to live in a way that it's going to show in your actions. But when you have hope, you make choices that will lead you toward that hope, toward that destiny. I read this to you last week, but Romans 5, 5 says, And hope does not disappoint us, because God has poured out his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, whom he has given us. You know, I think that primarily we see the book of Job as a study of suffering, but can I just also suggest that Job is really a story of a man's search for hope in a broken world. As a matter of fact, the word hope is used in the book of Job more than any other book, with the exception of Psalms, which of course is two and a half times longer than Job. Job is a, a man of hope, and his hope is in God. And it's because of this hope that he doesn't give at one point, Job says that it's the godless who have no hope. He says this in Job's, Job 8, uh, 13. He says, such is the destiny of all who forget God. The hope of the godless will perish. I want you to try and picture hope like this, if you will. I know that we don't have these type of rocks here on the East Coast, at least not here in our little region of the East Coast, but a couple of years ago, Jody and I and the Ashleys, we got to go over to the West Coast where we drove down the uh, Pacific Highway, which was just beautiful, and they had these massive rocks there and massive waves like we don't have here on the East Coast. But if you've ever been to the coast and you've seen like a big storm where those waves are coming in and they hit those rocks, sometimes those waves are so large that when they cover that particular rock, you think that's the end of that rock. But once the water recedes, there it is. It hasn't budged an inch. And the person who has hope is like that. No matter what is thrown at you, you know that it will not cause you to lose your footing. You see, no amount of money, power, or planning can prevent bereavement, illness, relationship betrayal, financial disaster, or a host of other troubles that could come into our life. Human life is fatally fragile, and it's subject to forces beyond our power to manage. If I can just say it this way, life is tragic. But our hope our peace. It doesn't come from ignoring our tragic losses, but
But watch this, quite the opposite. The scripture teaches us that we should actually intently consider the big issues of life. Let me explain what I mean. Because Paul gives us a great example of this very thing in Romans 8, 18, where he uses this Greek word here called logizomai. Logizomai, and logizomai, it says, I reckon, or I logizomai, I reckon that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that shall be revealed in us. And to reckon, that word, that logizomai, it means to count up accurately. It means to think it out, to think about the glory that's coming until the joy begins to break in on you. But this is where someone would say, man, you're talking about doctrine and all I need right now is comfort. But think, is Jesus really the Son of God? Did he really come down from heaven to earth to die for you, to rise again, and to pass through the heavens to the right hand of God? Did he endure infinite suffering for you so that one day he will take you to himself and where he would wipe away every tear from your eye? If so, then there is all the comfort that you will ever need. Now, if not, if none of those things are true, then we may be sitting around here for a good 70 or or 80 years until we perish. And the only happiness that we will ever know is in this life. And if by chance, and it's going to be a high chance, (laughs) that some trouble or suffering takes away that happiness, then it's lost forever. I mean, Jesus is either on the throne ruling all things, or this is as good as it gets. And what Paul is trying to communicate to us here in Romans 8 is that if you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Christ, and you have little to no hope or peace, it may be because you're not thinking. Peace comes from a disciplined thinking out of the implications of what you believe. It comes from an intentional occupation of a vantage point. Picture it like this. I don't know how many of you have ever climbed a mountain before. Anyone in here? I've climbed several mountains. And I'll tell you what, there's nothing more thrilling than to climb to some vantage point, some high point, and then turn around and seeing all the terrain that you just crossed. Suddenly you see the creek that you crossed, the foothills, the town that you just journeyed through. Your high vantage point, it gives you perspective and clarity and a sense of beauty. And this is what Paul's calling us to do, to think big, to think high. Realize who God is. Realize what he's done and who you are in Christ, where history is going. Put your troubles in perspective by remembering Christ's troubles on your behalf and all of his promises to you and what he's accomplishing. 2 Corinthians 4, 8 through 10 says, We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. You see, suffering is unbearable only if you aren't certain that God is for you 
and with you. And I want you to catch this. God doesn't say, if you go through the fire, the flood, and the dark valleys, but rather, when you go through. The promise is not that he will remove you from having those experiences of suffering. No, the promise is that God is with us, walking beside us the whole way. There's a common theme. I guess you could call it a common truth that we see in every man and woman of God mentioned in Scripture. And that is that there will be times of suffering. But God, come on, will be with you in each and every step. Come on, we saw that in the life of Joseph. And here now we're seeing it once again in the life of Job. But I'll tell you that you'll find this truth with every person who puts their faith and trust and hope in God. Why? Because God has promised that he will never leave us or that he will never forsake us. But the question is, will Job allow his experience to triumph over his faith? Or will his faith triumph over his experience? And church, this is a very relevant question even for us today amen stand your feet with me if you would next week we're going to continue to look at the life of job and so if you're here today can i just say trust me when I say you will not want to miss the second half of this message. You know what that's like? That's like being in the movies and midway through you leave, right? You think that the bad guy has won, right? And you never get the, the benefit or the satisfaction of seeing the resolve. Church, with God, there's always a resolve. And this is what it's referencing whenever it says, faithful is he who began a good work in you to bring it about to completion. Underline that word in your mind right now if you don't have your Bible there. Faithful is he who began a good work because I know that I know that I know there are some of you that are in this room that right now you're facing some opposition and, and different forms of suffering. And watch this. This is so true. Everyone's experiencing pain to certain degrees and certain levels, right? But the scripture says this. Faithful is he who began a good work in you, a good work so God is still working. And if that thing hasn't come about yet, don't stop in the middle of the movie and walk away. Don't put a period where God has a comma. God will work it out. And he will work all things together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to your purpose. And guess what? God will bring it about to completion. It's so easy for us to go ahead and to say, my story is written right here. And God says, man, I got this much more left. What are you talking about? But we know that God is faithful. God is not a man that he should lie. But he will do the very thing that he says that he will do. Now, today is just kind of a little bit of an introduction to the book of Job. And next week, we're going to get into some of the more practical applications of how God has called us to live. And specifically, uh, the importance of the people that we surround our lives with. Because outside of your personal faith, the single greatest influential factor in your life is who you allow in it. 
And so I'm going to leave you with a scripture as the team leads us in one more chorus. And I pray that these words, that they will take up residence in your spirit. Especially for those of you who you're going through something difficult. Grab hold of this. Psalm 31, 24. This isn't going to come up on the screen, so just lock it in. Psalm 31, verse 24. Be strong. That's the word in Hebrew. I think it's hazak. I didn't have that in my notes, but I remember hazak. Hazak. Be, be strong and take heart. All you who hope in the Lord. I want you to think about this verse. I want you to consider this verse. Be strong. Now here's what I want us to do. I want us to take a, a little look here at what our friend Noah Webster has to say about this. Be strong. Be. Webster defines for us what be means. Be means to have identity with. It means to have a specific characterization. It means to have, to maintain, and to occupy a position. It also means to remain undisturbed or uninterrupted. Come on, that right there's a lot of good stuff coming from some little word, right? So be strong and take heart. Take means to grab hold of. Grab hold of and do not let it go. Grab hold of it, to choose it. It means to choose. To take means to choose. It means to apply oneself to. That means that we don't just come into church on a Sunday morning and we hear the word and then go out and we forget about it, but we put into application the word that God has spoken, right? To lay hold of. Watch this. Take means to get into one's possession, to appropriate, and to maintain that point of view. Hmm, that fits in with that little illustration from earlier, right? And God's word tells us all of these things by wrapping them up with this one key word, hope. Be strong and take heart. All you who hope in the Lord. Our third daughter, we named hope. I love the definition of the word because it means to expect with confidence, to trust. And my favorite definition of hope is this. Someone or something on which hopes are centered. And we know that it's not something, but rather it's a someone, Jesus. And so I just want to close our time together by offering this invitation for anyone who would want to receive it. Just bow your heads with me for a moment. I'm going to ask this question. Have you placed your hope in Jesus Christ? Have you trusted that he would be that rock, that whenever the waves of life come crashing against you, that he would be the one, the only one, that could cause your feet to remain secure? Specifically, I'm giving the invitation to look to the sacrifice that Jesus made by giving his life as our ransom payment taking upon himself the sin along with its penalty that we deserve and canceling that sin debt that was against us. If not, I want you to know that you can answer that call right now. The call for recognizing our need for a Savior because of the sin that's in our life. 
and electing to say yes to becoming a follower of Jesus and a fellow citizen of heaven. Friends, there's no other name given under heaven in which men must be saved but the name of Jesus. And so if you want Jesus to be your Lord, your Savior, if you're ready to be that guy in the middle boat that is hearing the call of the Holy Spirit saying, come, follow me, and you say, I'll raise, I'll raise that sail, I'll set that sail, I'll catch the wind, I want to follow in what God has purposed for my life because God has a purpose for each and every one of your lives, and his purpose is good. That's why the prophet Jeremiah says, I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord, plans for good. Not for evil. The enemy's the one that tries to bring about evil in our life. But God's going to work that thing around for your good because he is faithful and just and he has declared it and his word will not return to him void. But it takes a surrendered heart that says, God, I surrender to you and I'm in need of a savior. If you want to receive the gift, the free gift that's being offered, of God's son being slaved as a sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sin. Not only that we can be citizens of heaven, praise God that we get to go in heaven, but guess what? He wants to give us life and give it more abundantly here on earth. You want the life, the love, the peace, the joy that comes from being a follower of Jesus. Doesn't mean there's not going to be storms. Doesn't mean there's not going to be suffering. Surely there will be. But what it means is that God will be with you through every valley, through every dark moment, and he will strengthen you through every step of the way. If that's you and you say, I want Jesus Christ. I want Jesus. I want to be a Christian. I don't want to play games. I want to follow hard after God. Friends, we never know how much time we have left on this earth. You, you can't promise me that you're going to be alive tomorrow, and I can't promise you that I'm going to be alive tomorrow. But I can promise you this right now. You have breath in your lungs. And as long as you have a pulse, you still have a purpose. And if you say, I want to be a follower of Jesus, right now with every head bowed, every eye closed, if that's you, say, I want to, I want to give my life to Christ. Put your hand up right now, and I want to pray with you. Come on. Yep, yep, yep. Who else? We're going to pray. This is also true of those of you that are watching online. Not even for those that it's live right now. Some of you may be watching this some other point down the road. We want you to know that right now you can call out to Jesus Christ, and he will give you that 180. Friends, the wind's already blowing. Can I tell you? The wind's already blowing, and it's either going to sink us or it's going to carry us and propel us to our God-ordained destiny. But it's only to the life that's surrendered to Jesus Christ. Pray this prayer right now of surrender out loud with me, if you would. Pray out loud, Lord Jesus. I confess my need for a Savior. I ask you, Jesus, be my Lord. Forgive me of my sin. Help me to turn from it and make you the Lord of my life. Jesus, I believe that you are the Son of God, that you died on the cross for the sin of the world. Jesus, I believe that you rose from the grave just as your word says. And now I want to live my life to know you and to make you known in Jesus' name. And everyone says, amen. Come on, can we thank God?